our chapter this morning will be Jeremiah 31. You may be seated. I'm going to have you guys stand up the entire sermon. No, it's Jeremiah 31. You can go ahead and open your Bibles. And as you do, I will begin by reading the chapter. 31, Jeremiah 31 is long, so we will be moving quickly. And I will be pointing out the divisions of the chapter as we read to help you put things in order. Okay? So don't be intimidated as you turn to 31 and see that it is, in fact, 40 verses long. We'll be moving quickly. And so I would ask for focus as we read initially, exceptionally so. So verse 1, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Verse 1 conveniently basically gives us our theme this morning, which is God has created a people for himself, by himself, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the part that is not there that we will uncover is obviously the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And helping us to understand our theme this morning, the passage will break into three major ideas. God's promises for Israel in verses 2 through 22, God's promises for Judah in 23 through 30, and God's new covenant with his people in 31 through the close of the chapter. And so with that, we're going to keep reading 2 through 22. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Before we continue, be encouraged this week, Cedarview, that we are catching our first real breath of fresh air in these chapters as we're going through Jeremiah. This is God's encouragement to his people, his reassurance to his people, that he will, in fact, bring them home, that he will, in fact, fight for them, that he will, in fact, recover them, even in the face of Babylon, who is about to take everything away. So be encouraged as we read. Again, I will build you, verse 4, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards in the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and you shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when the watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, arise and let us go up to Zion, the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with the gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among the blind and the lame, the pregnant women, and she who is in labor together. A great company, they shall return there. And with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Praise God, right? And he goes on. 
Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He who scattered Israel will gather him, and he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hands too strong for Jacob. They shall come and sing aloud at the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. They shall, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry, for I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Praise God, and he goes on. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. We heard this quoted in our scripture reading. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, Rachel, and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You, will, you have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Verse 19 is God speaking on behalf of his people, okay? This is what his people would be saying to him. And then picking back up in verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I shall surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on earth, a woman encircles a man. And so we have... In those verses, our first point, God's promises for Israel in verses 2 through 22. Now, if you were reading this at home, this chapter at home, you would likely, as I did, (laughs) find difficulty in breaking this chapter down into points, okay? And so I'll um, quote or cite Huey, as Matt did last week, in talking with Matt and uh, Josh on Wednesday, I was telling them, like, I'm banging my head on the wall trying to figure out how this long chapter breaks down. And Huey was helpful. He shows that it's broken down by way of geography. So the first 2 through 22 is going to be talking about Israel. And then God specifies Judah. Recall that Judah and Israel separated after Solomon died. Um, Essentially, a new king came on the scene. Nobody liked that guy, and every uh, tribe other than Judah seceded from the kingdom. 
uh, making essentially two states, okay? So similar to how we have the 50 states of America, there were the two states, Israel and Judah, except they had their own kings, they kind of did their own thing, but when the going got tough, they stuck together, okay? Now, commentaries like Huey's can be helpful in your personal Bible reading, okay? So don't feel as though your study Bible notes or a commentary is detracting, taking away from you being in the Word of God. But I would also encourage you not to rely on those notes to the detriment of you just reading God's Word and hearing from the Lord. So don't let use commentaries, but don't let yourselves hear from Huey more than you hear from the Holy Spirit. And so as we continue, we can remember in these coming verses, as we're reading, keep in mind that as God, um, through Jeremiah, is speaking about Judah, these are being expanded from verses 2 through 22, okay? So Judah is not getting different promises, they're, okay, this is for, Ju- or for Israel in 2 through 22, and now this is for Judah. No, these are all together, but God was gracious enough to clarify, like, I'm not forgetting about you, Judah, okay? So God is going to specify Judah, and he's going to repeat a lot of these same ideas because they are the same people currently existing as two nations, okay? So verse 23 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more, they shall use the words in the lands of Judah and the cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill, which is just citing a psalm. And then verse 24, and Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together and the farmers and those who wander from the flocks, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Praise God. And I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. So this was all a dream given to Jeremiah, okay? Now Jeremiah is awake, starting in verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man, the seed of beast. And it will come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And in those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And so verses 23 through 30, we have our second point, God's promises for Judah. As we already just discussed, these promises and assurance is for Israel in 2 through 22 are being expanded to Judah in 23 through 40. And so as we go through the rest of the chapter, we'll see that 31 through 40 demonstrate exactly how God will carry out these promises and assurances. Okay, And this will take place through the new covenant of God. All right? So everything that we have been blessed to hear, these promises of God, these assurances of God given to his people, how will these come to pass? God tells us that it is through the new covenant. Okay? 
So verse, starting in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Recall that he called them virgin Israel. Though they were harlots, okay? So praise God for his language here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars are the light by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs, from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. God says that if the universe implodes, then sure, Israel will no longer be my people. But we know it is by whose hand that all things consist by whose hand the celestial bodies above revolve around different stars and solar systems and galaxies and an apparently expanding universe? That is by God's sovereign hand. So he's saying, yeah, if the universe blows up, you'll no longer be my people, but praise God, it is by God's hand alone that the universe does not blow up. So by my power, says the Lord. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for they for what they have done. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, to the measuring line shall go further straight from the hill Gereb and shall t- then turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the Kidron to the corner of the horse gate to the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. And so we see in verses 31 through 40, our third point, God's new covenant with his people. Again, our theme is God has created a people for himself by himself through the life, death, resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so praise God for his word. Praise God for Jesus, the word incarnate. And pray with me as we hop into the passage. Father, thank you for these promises that we can cling to today. Father, thank you that regardless of what Babylon stands before us, just as you delivered your people from Babylon, so you shall deliver us from whatever stands before your people today. Father, be with me as we unpack this text. 
be with the hearers, that we can remain diligent and focused through this long chapter to hear what you would have us hear this morning. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we get to pray. Amen. So, our first major division, our first major idea in the text is God's promises for Israel, verses 2 through 22. As I said uh, before, this is going to set the scene for the rest of the chapter, and Judah's promises are going to be expansions of what we hear now. To help us see these promises, we have three subpoints that will come on the screen as we go. The first subpoint of this passage is the land retrieved, which is going to be verses 2 through 6. So first, in assuring God's people, okay, we see a focus in the actual land, the geography of Israel, all right? And God brings to mind his faithfulness in the exodus from Egypt in verse 2. God reminds his people that just as he preserved them in the wilderness where they had no kingdom, had no supplies, had no anything, they slapped a rock and water came out. They looked up and bread fell out of the sky. Just as I preserved you then, so I will preserve you today against the swords of Babylon, says the Lord. And praise God that we see Jesus begin to fulfill these verses with his inaugural statement in his earthly ministry, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus the beginning, the first domino being set in motion for these promises of God in Jeremiah 31 being fulfilled through Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom found yet on the soil of this earth, but rather it is found in the hearts of his people. It is found in the church of God gathered here and gathered locally around the world. Praise God that as you see the promises to Israel this morning, you can know that his promises to retrieve a physical kingdom that did come true in Ezra and Nehemiah are coming true in a truer sense through Jesus. That the kingdom of God that reigns in the hearts of men, gather, men and women gathered here today will become a kingdom found upon the soil of this earth when Jesus returns for the second time. Our second sub-point is the children recovered. God's people also asked, what will happen to our children? Which is a pretty reasonable question to ask, right? Rejoice with God's people of old that there is not one of God's people that will be left stranded from the flock. Just as we saw Jesus teach the parable of the lost sheep, we see here in 7 through 15 repeated promises to his people who are stranded, his people who are separated from the rest, that he will go out. He will leave his habitation and bring them back to the fold. Though God was giving future hope, the people of God understandably wept over the suffering their children would experience in the meantime. But we know that there is no suffering that Jesus himself would not suffer, that he may be made like his brother's in every respect. 
And behold, no kingdom on this earth may stand against God's sovereign protective hand as we heard in the scripture reading this morning. Matthew 2, 17 and 18. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. What? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Stand confident, church, that though Babylon may overthrow you, though Herod may seek to murder your firstborn, though America may fade and our world be set on fire, we have our God declaring in Jeremiah 31, 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Though your entire world crumbles around you, as it was, we can't even fathom what what it was like for God's people when Babylon was overthrowing them. We live in America. Folks can't do that to America, (laughs) right? Everything was taken from them. Foreigners came into their land and said, this is mine now, and took them as slaves. Their world was crumbling around them. And God says, you don't need to cry. I will restore you. I will bring you back. And so you can rest assured, Christian, That if you know Christ, the kingdom of God is coming. And our king will return not as a lamb, but as a lion. And he will overthrow every oppressor of God on the face of this earth. And so I read verse 16. We'll continue for our third sub-point, God's people repenting. Sheen vav bet. Okay? My Hebrew is awful, so I rarely bring up any Hebrew for any sort of uh, preaching to you guys. The reason I am today, though, is that in six verses, this Hebrew word is used seven times, okay? This Hebrew word is the word for repent or restore, all right? And so we actually see in our passage this morning a brief theology, a brief teaching of what repentance looks like for God's people then and for the Christian today. So consider these few thoughts as we read the passage um, now, or as we look at the passage now, and as you read it again in the future. I would encourage you to read this chapter again in this week even. Because we are going quite fast, and I think you'll find that you'll be encouraged as you read this again this week. So the first time, Shin Vabet is used and translated, come back, in verse 16, come back in the ESV at the very least. We see this as the precedence of Shin Vabet being something ultimately accomplished by God himself. Okay? So this restoration and this repentance is accomplished by God's power, okay? Yet in verses 18 and 19, God manuscripts a prayer. I I pointed this out earlier. This is a manuscripted prayer that God says, but he's speaking on behalf of us, 
okay? So he's giving us sort of like the Lord's Prayer, right? He's sort of giving us what we ought to say to him, right? And it is our duty then to repent. So we have already this sort of tension that repentance and restoration is by God's power, but he clearly has given us responsibility to repent as well. And then in verse 21, God exhorts us, encourages us after repentance to change the way we live and to guard against sin, to put up these guide, guideposts, okay? If I did this once, put a fence there to not do that again, right? And in verse 22, God's encouragement in the face of evil is to set our eyes on things above, to consider his work of salvation through Jesus, so to put all that together, consider that repented or repentance prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It does not end at confession. It doesn't even end at asking forgiveness. But it continues toward making changes and looking to Jesus again by the Holy Spirit's power. So repentance and belief prompted and empowered by God himself will not only cause you to turn away from evil. It will cause you to build a wall so you don't go to that evil again. And furthermore, it will give you a destination. It will give you that heavenly Jerusalem. It will give you that future hope, Jesus himself, to look forward to. Okay? And I think, I know for me personally, I stop oftentimes at repent, ask for forgiveness, and I do little to guard against future failure. And I do little to look to Jesus and worship him in that time of failure. And so I would encourage you, as I was encouraged this week, don't simply stop, don't simply ask for forgiveness, but change something and seek the Lord's help to what that change might be. And then look to Jesus and be encouraged that even in the midst of that deep, dark failure, you're covered in the blood of Christ. So, God has created, our theme again, God has created a people for himself, by himself, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We're moving right along to our second major division in the text, Judah's promises for, or God's promises for Judah. Judah doesn't have much collateral to make promises. Verses 23 through 30. And so as we introduce the second major idea, God's promises for Judah, hold on to these ideas about repentance, okay? Because just like the promises are expanded from Israel to Judah, so is this idea of repentance, okay? So everything that God just said about repentance toward Israel carries forward, likewise, to Judah as well. And so, again, after graciously <laughs> clarifying that Judah is to receive these promises, God will demonstrate his repentance universally between the two as well. And so God's word restored is our first sub-point for the second idea. Verse 23 is one of those verses that manages to both encourage you, right? But it also, or at least it did for me, manages to sucker punch you to the jaw, okay? 
the Lord will restore his people. That's a capital W with an underline, right? The Lord will restore his people. If there's anything that you are falling short in, or if there's anything around you that is crumbling, the Lord will restore his people. You can just tell, you can just say that. And you're not just saying nice words. God has promised it. You can rest on God's word that God will restore his people. We will be there at the summit of that holy hill, carried there in the loving arms of our Lord Jesus, because we can't walk. So there are some of you that can't physically climb a mountain today. Depending on the mountain, I would argue that there's most mountains that none of us in here could climb today. But that doesn't matter. Because this mountain, we are being carried by the Lord Jesus himself. We will ascend that mountain because Jesus is going to throw us over his shoulder. But the sucker punch comes in recognizing that these promises, okay, these promises are being given to God's people as Babylon is about to overthrow them. But these promises never cease to be true. Rather, God's people in their despair just forgot to claim them. The Lord says that in that time, God's people will once again claim these promises. Why did we ever stop? We are no different than the people of old, Cedarview. And we stop declaring the promises of God in the face of despair. But for that low point, you have our second sub point, Judah's souls replenished. Praise God. So verses 24 and 25, in a paternal, like a fatherly kind of warmth, okay, God seems to lift the weight off of his people's shoulders. So as, he see, as a father sees his child struggling, like Asher tries to pick everything up now, and he can pick up next to nothing, okay? So he's struggling to lift things all the time. <laughs> and in this warm type of way, it's, it's, we see that God will gather all cities and communities together not forgetting any of the isolated, none of the farmers, none of the shepherds that are outside the city center, right? No one's going to be forgotten. He himself will gather them, right? He will welcome them into his arms and restore their weary souls. Does that remind you of anything that our Lord Jesus has said? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord himself takes the burden off of our shoulders. And he says, yeah, come yoke up with me because I'm going to carry all the weight. God has created a people for himself, by himself, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus.
Our next subpoint is the seeds of abundance replanted, verses 26 through 28. In poetic language, God communicates to both Israel and to Judah that he will make them abundant once more. Remember, it was a sign of wealth to have many children and many livestock. So the seed of the people and the seed, like the seed of man and the seed of the beast is to say that you're going to be rich, okay? You're going to be abundant. You're going to be wealthy. And I will give those to you. I will sow that in my people. So as you read your Bible, though, be careful to note when God accomplishes every act in the verses. Because we have a real danger If we look at promises from God like this and we think that our efforts will bring them about, we're in dangerous territory if we are taking away from the glory of God thinking that we can work hard enough to bring these things about. But likewise, as we look at this text, we don't only see that God alone brings about the abundance. But we see that the breaking down, the being overthrown, the destruction, the harm, God was sovereign over that too. But who will be solely responsible for creating that people for himself, by himself, through Jesus? God alone. So as we live in this broken world, Christians are the only people on the face of this planet that can confidently say that we never have to despair when anything happens. Nothing is outside of our God's control. No matter how tragic or disheartening, we know that our good and perfect God is sovereign over it. Doesn't make it easy. (laughs) As many of you have experienced loss through We'll just, if we only talk about sickness and death, let alone all the other innumerable types of trauma, of pain, of difficulty, of struggle, if we only took sickness and death, if not all of us in this room, there might be some who are too young that will in the future experience this traumatic loss that causes us not even, I want to be careful. Jesus wept when Lazarus perished. Jesus, who was literally on his way to bring Lazarus back from the dead, wept at death. So rest assured, church, that emotion, that weeping, that mourning is not born from sin. It can become sin. When we take that mourning and we throw it in the face of our sovereign God. So how do we we mourn as those with hope? We say, I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know that I want to know God. But in this deep, dark struggle of mine, help me to take steps forward. Be with me as I lack understanding. I have no answers. I can't tell you why Babylon overthrew Judah and Israel other than 
Judah and Israel did deserve it, right? They were being disciplined. But that doesn't have, I don't have answers to all the questions. The Bible doesn't give you the answers to all those questions. But it does give you this, that God's people in the face of adversity, that God's people in the, pa- in the face of pain can and should claim the promises of God. God will restore his people. I don't know how it works in the meantime, but God will restore his people. To continue, false tradition was rejected. And because God knows whom he created, (laughs) immediately following, okay, what we just heard about pain and suffering and these promises um, given to his people, God immediately rebukes a false teaching that was prevalent in that time and is prevalent to a good bit, I guess, uh, today. God's promises for Judah also show a false tradition being rejected. That false tradition uh, persisted throughout the generations of God's people. It it would have been from the people at this time. It would have been like their great great grandparents, so this would have started because it was born out of Exodus 34, 7, okay? So God, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, so this points to the need for Jesus, okay? But they take this next phrase, and they got this false teaching out of it. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So they basically took verse 7, and made this quote in Jeremiah 31, 9, which says, The father have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Basically, the children are paying for the sins of their fathers. In, in a, you know, a fancy way of saying that. Now, original sin, the original sin of Adam, and how the depravity of man works itself out, um, there's some nuance there that Christians can disagree and stand in, you know, different places, and that's fine. We can, all, we can disagree on some of the particulars of how that works. But what we can't disagree on, with charity at least, is that the idea that God clarifies here. It is clear that every man stands accused, who stands accused, stands accused based on his own sin. There is not a single human life, there's not a single person on the face of this earth who has ever existed that is condemned because of the sin of another. Every condemned human being stands accused because of their own sin. I don't, again, we don't have all the answers of how that works, but we can say with certainty, because God said it himself. We'll look at Romans 10, uh, 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room, right? Jeremiah thirty-one thirty. but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Again, the, the, the depravity of man and Adam's original sin and how that broke the entire universe, we can disagree on some particulars there. But where we must all agree is what God's word says, that everyone shall die 
for his own sin, his own iniquity. So if we all stand accused, though, who do we need? Yep, Sunday school. Yep, Jesus. We all need Jesus. God has created a people for himself, by himself, through Jesus Christ. And so our third division, and then we will conclude, is God's new covenant with his people, verses 31 through 40. Our last major idea is, again, God's covenant. And as we unpack this major idea, know that God's new covenant is the climax of the entire story of God's salvation, okay? So this is not an idea that could be adequately covered if this was the only point of this sermon, and there was a few sermons about it, okay? This is the third point of one sermon, and we're not going to come anywhere close to touching how God's new covenant interacts with the rest of Scripture. What we are witnessing in God's new covenant is the glue that holds the entire salvation story together, okay? So because we cannot do many things well, we're going to focus in and do one thing better, (laughs) okay? Um, I want to show you guys how the book of Hebrews is actually a commentary on what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, And so I'm doing this to, one, encourage you that if you own zero commentaries, if you own zero books about the Bible, you are blessed to have the Bible to interpret other scripture. Jeremiah didn't have the book of Hebrews to tell him what he meant. Jeremiah didn't know what he was saying. But we have the book of Hebrews, we have God's word to interpret God's word. We are blessed to have the entirety of God's word today. So with that, we're going to be looking at Hebrews, and we're going to be seeing how that interacts with our passage this morning. It is not um, an exaggeration to say that the new covenant touches everything we know about God's salvation. And so we will see the book of Hebrews serves as the commentary for the New Testament, or the Old Testament, and it's also a helpful reminder that... The book of Hebrews primarily comments on the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is something that we typically avoid, right, as readers. (laughs) It doesn't sound very interesting, but consider that the book of Hebrews was written because of of Leviticus. So there is every sacrifice that is outlined with detail, right? Like, you got to wear certain shoes, you got to keep your feet a certain way, like, detailed. And how these sacrifices, they all point to Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled those sacrifices. And so we're going to use Hebrews for our text this morning. To hop right in, the author of Hebrews cites verse 33 in our text this morning, saying that Jeremiah 31, 33 is prophesying Jesus Christ himself. We basically knew that, right? But we have Hebrews to tell us. And now we see what God is doing in this new covenant enacted by the blood of Jesus. So the new community is created, our first sub-point for the new covenant. There's something new and unique about this community that God is creating. So 31 through 33 shows us that we no longer can break this covenant, right? What happened... 
What happened the first time Moses went up the mountain and came down with the Ten Commandments? He, he snapped him in two, right? Because Moses couldn't make it back down the mountain before, well, let's do it again, all right? We couldn't make it to hear the law of God before breaking it. We're pitiful creatures, all right? We need Jesus, right? There's something unique about this community, though. No longer can you break it. Interesting. Okay, so we, so we see, we go further. Um, we can no longer become unclean, unfit, and unworthy. And we're going to see in Hebrews that there is a superior priest speaking on our behalf, right? A priest who never tires, a priest who never fails, a priest who never dies, a new community of God will always be kept pure by the work of this new priest, The role of the priest, again, was to be a sort of advocate between God and his people. He was the mediator of the sacrifices. He would offer them on behalf of the people. He would sprinkle the people with the blood of the sacrifice. But we're going to get a new priest. Hebrews 7 and 8 shows us that Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because Jesus hasn't obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old And as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Since his sacrifice was once for all when he offered up himself. The the better promises, to be clear, are that God will and has accomplished the entirety of our salvation. The old covenant gave us a part to play. And do you know what happens when we're given a part to play? We mess it up. The new covenant, God accomplishes the entirety of our salvation. The new covenant is not like the old where you can break it and depart from me, says the Lord, but I will give you new hearts. Conclusion, the conclusion of Hebrews at least, is that Jesus is the better priest. Okay, The priest of this new covenant is superior. In a new community created in God's people from the old, made new, a new community of God's people that are born again, that are made new, that are washed, that are cleansed, that are given new hearts. Does that sound familiar? Who could this new community be? It's us here today. It is the church, the gathering of washed, born-again people of God, who God accomplished our salvation entirely. Jesus is our high priest. And so our second sub point, the new communication that is established, verses 34 through 37. The very way that we speak to one another changes from old covenant to new covenant. Verses 34 through 37 tells us that no longer do we press each other to know the Lord, for in the new covenant, who knows the Lord? All of us, everyone, God has revealed himself to us. So no longer will we tutor one another toward our God, but God has already revealed himself to everyone in the community. And so if you want to have one of many reasons why I'm a convinced Baptist, it's because we believe in born-again church membership and believer's baptism. Because everyone in the new covenant knows Jesus. Everyone. Church, it is possible 
for our iniquity to be forgiven. It is possible for our sins to be forgotten because we have been born again through the saving blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is not just good, it is essential. The author of Hebrews reminds the reader that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins of the people. By citing Psalm 51, 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And he continues, but a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For by a single offering, himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The conclusion of Hebrews, Jesus offers better blood. Because the blood of goats and bulls wasn't doing anything for us. And so our last sub-point, a new commune rebuilt. And so we see a new commune rebuilt in verses 38 through 40. Cedarview, we can join hands with Jeremiah and the saints of old as we await this new Jerusalem. Verses 38 through 40 found their first fulfillment with Ezra and Nehemiah right? That the city of God was rebuilt in that time physically. But they look forward and we look forward to another Jerusalem, right? We see in Revelation 21, this new and heavenly Jerusalem descending upon the new creation. This is the Jerusalem that we look forward to. This is the Jerusalem that we lock arms with the saints of old in glorying. <laughs> this new creation, Hebrews 12 tells us, we, are no long, we no longer come to Mount Sinai, right? The place where God gave Moses the law and then he had to snap them because the people broke it immediately. We no longer come to that mountain of fire in fear and trembling. Hebrews 12 tells us that we come to Mount Zion, where the angels are rejoicing. In festal gathering, they say. That where all the people of God who have been sanctified completely rejoice together, all surrounding the person of Jesus Christ himself. And there seems to be some sort of fountain of blood that pours as if it were the living water. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ doesn't cry aloud in the field shouting, I was murdered. The blood of Christ speaks salvation upon his people. This kingdom this salvation, this gathering at Zion, and this Jerusalem, Hebrews 12 concludes, will not be shaken. Will not be shaken. Can you name a nation? Can you name a city in all of history 
that has not been shaken. It hasn't existed. There is a new community. There is a new establishment. There is a new building being created by God that is unique. It is separate from that which we have experienced. And we can trust in the crafter of this new Jerusalem because our God is an all-consuming fire. Jesus gives us a better Jerusalem. God has created a people for himself, by himself, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen today three major ideas in Jeremiah 31. God's promises for Israel in verses 2 through 22. God's promises for Judah in 23 through 30. And God's new covenant with his people in 31 through 40. God has created and in some sense is creating that people for himself by whose power? His own. All of this is accomplished through the person and work of our Lord Jesus. And as we see these promises of God made reality through the new covenant, let us respond to this great salvation the same way the church did way back in Hebrews 10. So the first churches (laughs) would have received this teaching from the author of Hebrews about Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews says this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Be encouraged as we go, Cedarview, that the salvation of God through Jesus in the new covenant demands that his people be together. The local church is not something that we do on Sunday. It is the very identity for which we exist on this earth. We are not our own, and we are not citizens of this world. When we gather to worship the one true God, this is the one and only time on the face of this earth that God's kingdom manifests upon soil, because we are here together. So I would encourage you as you go home today, as I already have, that in your times of personal worship this week, Read Hebrews 7 through 12, okay? All that I drew from, from Hebrews, is found in those chapters. Read Hebrews 7 through 12, and then read Jeremiah 31 again. Hebrews 7 through 12, and then read our text this morning, Jeremiah 31 again. And be encouraged that as we while understanding something like the new covenant may seem daunting, you can speak confidently about your Bible by simply reading your Bible. Praise God. Scripture interprets Scripture, and you can stand confident and assured that you will never know too much of God's Word.
So with that, be encouraged as we go, Cedar View, and pray with me. Father, thank you.